The following message is a presentation from Grace Baptist Church in Kettering, Ohio. I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 13. But before we get there, I want to make a reference to the last chapter in Luke, which tells about the Lord's appearance to the disciples on the night uh, on the evening of the day that he rose from the dead. The Luke passage, roughly verses 36 to, or, uh, 36 to 44, I believe is the most descriptive portion that talks about the resurrected body of our Lord. He says in that passage, look, a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And then he says, touch me. And then he says, do you have anything to eat? And they give him fish and a honeycomb, and he eats before them. Now, all this is to say that the Lord Jesus rose bodily from the dead. He did not rise as a spirit. I don't know of a more preposterous thing to build a theology on or a church on than, the, uh, than a man rising from the dead. Now, if you know of one, I'd be glad to listen to it. But in my mind, either Christ rose from the dead and it's, or he didn't, and it's the most preposterous lie that has been perpetrated down through history. Now, you can disagree with me, and, and I'd be glad to listen to you, but, but the idea of a man rising from the dead in the eyes of the disciples themselves who heard Jesus talk about it went right over their heads. I'm sure that you are aware of this. There are at least 35 references to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. I haven't counted them all. Uh, it's very easy to do a search on rose and risen and so forth. But I counted 35 and that's good enough for me. As Christians, the Bible tells us that we ought not to look on temporal things. Class, what does temporal mean? What, is, what are temporal things? Temper, time, time, the, the here and now, the time things. But we are to look upon the eternal. Now, let me ask you a question. I hope some of you will answer this. Why did Jesus Christ have to rise bodily from the dead. Now, I'm going to deal with two of them tonight, but there's a whole lot more. I, I don't know. There may be nine or ten that I, that I could think of. But we're only going to do... Cliff? All right. That, that's, that's one reason. Now, was Jesus Christ lying? No, he wasn't. 
He said, he, uh, he said destroy this temple, uh, meaning his body, and in three days I'll, I'll raise it up again. And the, and the Jews thought he was talking about the, the, the second temple there that, that Herod had built. Uh, that's one reason. What's, what's another? You got one, um, Dennis? Okay, that's one that I'm going to deal with tonight. But that, that's the second one. What does Romans say? Who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our what? Justification. And we'll not look at it, but at the end of, of this passage that we'll look upon tonight, the Apostle Paul talks about the justification of the believers that's related to to the Lord's resurrection. Any other? Okay, let's let's go to, to Acts chapter 13. And you follow as I read verses 28 to 31. Now, after I'm done reading, I want you to tell me who Paul is talking about, and what great thing occurred to him. Okay? 1328. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had filled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. First of all, who is Paul talking about? Jesus Christ. And what does he say happened to Jesus Christ? Pardon? God raised him from the dead. So the subject of this, these verses is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, by the way, Paul is in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, which is in Turkey, in modern, which is modern-day Turkey today. And in this passage following, we have the first reason that Jesus Christ had to rise bodily from the dead. In verse 30, he says, God raised him from the dead. And then Paul 31, he says, he was seen many days by his disciples. The first reason that Paul gives for Christ rising from the dead is that he had to rise from the dead to fulfill a prophecy made to David and to Israel. Now, usually we don't think in these terms, but nevertheless, this is a very important reason why Christ had to, had to rise from the dead. Now, look in verse uh, 33, 
God hath, uh, let, let's start with 32. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that he raised up Jesus again. Now, he's going to cite a passage from the second psalm, just, just a short line. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now tell me, what in that statement indicates that this is a prophecy about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It doesn't appear to be on the surface. At least, it didn't to me. And look what he says. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. What does the word begotten mean? Pardon? Raised? That's not one of the words that is... That's not one of the words which is given as a possible rendering of, of the word. Birth, okay. Does, does the birth of Christ fulfill a prediction of a resurrection? What? What? It's a start. Well, we'll come back. Morris, we'll come back to it. There, there's other people that say the same thing. Judy? I'm sorry. Well, that, that's true, but first of all, there is no question but what this verse is used as a prophecy of the resurrection. It says it in the previous, in the previous verse, the previous statement, so there's no question about it. The whole understanding of thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, rests upon the word begotten. Now, I think some of you know that I've been trying to witness to a Jehovah's Witness. And Morris, this goes back to what you said, uh, begotten or, or bearing. JWs translate this, today I have become your father. As if God the Father created Jesus and brought him into existence. Now, the reason that they translate it like that is, number one, they have to fit the Bible to what they, they believe, and number two, they're not very good Greek students. I got to looking at the meaning of this word, and it, there's one um, secondary meaning of this, and, and the meaning of it is brought forth. So this day have I brought you forth with the idea being just like a son is brought forth from the womb. Now, it, the connection is not in the, the beginning, but the connection is the fact of 
of bringing forth. Uh, if you were listening to a uh, uh, Cincinnati game, you might hear the announcer say, well, uh, the manager is bringing forth another uh, relief picture fr pitcher from the uh, bullpen. Has nothing to do with the birth of the relief pitcher that is coming that is coming out of the uh, out of the bullpen. But there are many words, both in our English and in, in other languages, that have multiple meanings. We're just thinking about the, the word wake. How many of you have been to awake? How many have you seen the wake of a boat? Are they related? They're about this close to each other. There are a lot of words that are like that. Let's go on here. And as, verse 34, and as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. How can Christ, was, was Christ corrupted before he died? What kind of a body does he have? He has a body like you and like me that when it would die, it would rot. His, his body was subject to the same type of deterioration that your body and my body has when we die. And if when I die, the Lord, the rapture doesn't take place within about three days, I'm going to rot. And I hate to tell you this, but you will too, in spite of the embalming. We are going to decay. But you see, after the Lord rose from the dead, he was only in the grave three days. It was not time enough for his body to rot. So that's why this passage can say that, that Jesus would not rot again. The, the key word there is again. Now, the second reason that Christ has got to rise bodily from the dead is to fulfill the Davidic covenant. What is the Davidic covenant? Dennis, what's the Davidic co covenant? But what would the ancestry be of that king? It would be David's line. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where this is made. Nathan was a prophet in the court of David. And David has told him that he wants to build a house or a, a tabernacle, a, a, a place where the, um, where the Ark of the Covenant could rest. Because up to this point, there isn't any. And it doesn't get made until, it doesn't start until the fourth year of Solomon, prob probably about 24, 25, maybe 30 years after this. We don't know the exact date when, when uh, Nathan told David about this. But Nathan, the Lord came to Nathan at night and he said, tell David that, that I am going to build him a house. 
Now, what does he mean by house? Does he mean uh, does he mean a large spreading building? What's he mean by house? What is the house of Windsor? It's a lineage, it's the line. God told David, he said, I am going to guarantee that you will have a line so that a descendant of yours will always sit on the throne of David. And David, if, you, if we took time to read the passage, you can see that David is like in awe of that. Now, Psalm 89 was written by David. And in Psalm 89, he says, uh, he writes, My covenant, that's the Lord speaking through David, My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed, his descendants, shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. The promise that God made to David had a double lock. First of all, God promised it. Can God lie? Can't lie. God did not need to enter into a sworn oath that this was going to come, come about. Now, in Hebrews, about another thing, uh, in, in his oath to Abraham, it's, it's, uh, in God's oath to Abraham, he, he says that, he says, because God could swear by no greater than himself, he swore by himself that what God promised to Abraham was going to take place. How many of you remember what Isaiah 53, 1 says? Does anybody remember that? Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Verse 2, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Now, Isaiah wrote about the reign of Jesus Christ in Isaiah 9.6. Isaiah wrote 300 years after David lived. And in Isaiah 53, written about right around 700, Isaiah says he shall come as a root out of dry ground. What happened to the monarchy of Israel in 586 B.C. Now, Dennis, you'll know that. What happened? By, how, how did it happen, Dennis? They came and they literally wiped out Jerusalem and the temple, completely wiped it out. Now, it gets rebuilt uh, many, many years later in about 5, 516. But the point is, is that from 586 until the birth of Christ, 
the dry ground from which the king of Israel is going to come is the dead monarchy of Israel that does not exist. Now, yes, Mary and Joseph were in the line, but they certainly weren't kings. So the promise is given to David, again to Isaiah in, uh, in about 700. And what does Gabriel say to Mary about the birth of her son? What is he going to have, going to take? Upon the throne of David. He will sit on the throne of David. Now, in order for a descendant of David to sit upon the throne, what must he have? Yeah, he's got to be a king, but what... What is his uh, composition got to be? I'm sorry, I can't hear you, Beth. But how uh, does a spirit? What? What D? He's got to have a body. Now it's a wonder that she doesn't walk out because I've been talking to her. She's very patient. He's the, the, the one to sit on David's throne has got to be in some way physically related to David. And so in order for him to be physically related to David, he not only dies, but he must rise again with a new body. Now look at our, our text here in, in um, uh, 13. Uh, Got to find it here. Okay. So I will give, okay, verse 34. I will give, let's see, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Why does it say, I will give you, that is to the Jews, the Jewish nation, the sure mercies of David? God has has promised and he has sworn. And David lived a perfect life thereafter, right? What did David do? There's three major sins that David committed. Number one. Okay, that's the third one. <laughs> that, that was the least obvious one that I, that I thought. Oh, yeah, well, that, that led to adultery, and the adultery led to the murder of Uriah. Now, do you see where the, where the mercy of God comes into this? That, in, that even though God had, had promised and he had sworn, and David committed these atrocious sins, nevertheless, the grace of God uh, and the mercy of God overrode everything, and God never, never rescinded his promise to the establishment of the Davidic kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ. Then he points as further evidence of this resurrection. He says in verse 36, 
or verse 35, Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Who is the holy one? Jesus Christ. What is corruption? The decay of his body. Prophetically in Psalm 16.10, David writes that Jehovah God, Lord, will not allow the physical body of Jesus Christ to rot and decay. Now, what does this mean to us? I, I started out at the, at the beginning by saying that our attention should be on the eternal as opposed to the temporal. And I confess that uh, sometimes, that many times, maybe most of the time, I'm consumed with the day-to-day, -day, the temporal, more than I am with the eternal. So don't think that because I've been in the ministry that, that I live up here. Um, would, would Keith say the same thing, Morris? Of course he would. Keith, uh, Keith uh, Morris, uh, Keith Betry is a pastor over in uh, Illinois. But of course he would. Uh, let's see here. Get ahead of my notes here. Then he says, then he says, let's see, in verse 34, 34c, I will give to you the sure mercies of David. This is a quote from Isaiah 55, 3. So it is necessary for Jesus Christ to rise from the dead so that God can fulfill his promise not only to David but to Israel. Now, in all of this, Paul is trying to convince these Jews in Antioch of Pisidia that Jesus is the Christ. What could be a more powerful argument than to show that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, therefore he is the promised Messiah? That's quite an argument. Well, what does this mean to us? Well, it means that God is able to do what he said he would do. Class, what does, what does it show us about God that he is able to make a prophecy a thousand years before Christ is born about the resurrection and have it come to fruition a thousand years later. What does this tell us about God? What must God be able to do to make what he said come out? Pardon? Just see it? Does the future just happen? Pardon? He must be able to arrange the events to bring about the fulfillment. 
He is in sovereign control. Now, so far as that relates to us, this gives us confidence that God is able to answer our prayers. Uh, I've, I've been praying for some of the, for three men in our church and for uh, Carl, the JW, and I will tell you, I don't see anything happening. Nothing happening. I witnessed trying to talk to some of these men, or any, all these men is like spitting into the wind. But I am convinced that God is able to arrange the circumstances to bring about the salvation of these men. Now, whether he will or not, I don't know. The issue is that he, that, that he can. Uh, Dennis? Yeah. Yep. Part? Yeah. God has not told me one if he will or when he will. And there are there are stories of people who have prayed for people for years and years. They've died, and after they died, then they got saved. Their salvation had nothing to do with the person because they were already dead, but years later they get saved. So my, my responsibility is to be faithful in believing that God is going to act. The second thing that, that um, this, this teaches us is that the bodily resurrection secures our resurrection. David says in Psalm 16, 9, My soul doth rest in hope. Why? For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou uh, let thy Holy One to see corruption. David tied his eternal life to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, David never saw Jesus Christ. He lived a thousand years before. But David was, was convinced that his resurrection, his life after death, that death was not going to end his life, that he was convinced that the resurrection of the Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ, was assurance that he would rise from the dead. For a long time in my life, I never had anyone in my family grandmas, grandpas, aunts, uncles, that uh, no relatives that died. I don't know if you're like that, but sooner or later, we will all go to awake or hear that a relative has passed into eternity. David knew that his time would come, and it did. But he was assured of resurrection because of, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, what do we have? We have 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, 13 to 17, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, 
that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them or precede them, precede them, which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Somebody's going to beat us if we're still alive. It'll be the dead in Christ. So, the bodily resurrection of Christ must occur because otherwise God would be a liar, both in the establishment of uh, the kingship, the eternal kingship for David and to Israel to have a king on the Davidic line. Secondly, there would be no millennial kingdom, no thousand-year reign of Christ if Jesus Christ is still in the grave. We would not be able to rule and reign with him. And thirdly, if Christ did not rise from the dead, we would rot in the cemetery or wherever else. Well, let's go to prayer. Are, we, uh, are there prayer requests first? Uh, let's see, I think... Um, Frank uh, Batiste, is it daughter? Daughter-in-law is not recovering as fast from the uh, um, surgery. Uh, I think Carell's uh, daughter is, is recovering. Um, I've heard in prayer letters that uh, uh, Nairobi, or well, Kenya is opened up uh, from the COVID, but it's a, it's a tenuous thing. Uh, they're worried about this, um, this new variant. But the last word I've got is that they're able to, able to open up and minister. Uh, any other prayer requests? Uh, John, uh. Okay. What about the sprinkles? Does anybody know how they are doing? Do you? Boy, I, this, uh, some people get this and it just knocks them. And other people are hardly sick. Uh, Cliff? A rock and a hard place. I won't say any more than that. But sometimes it takes a rock and a hard place, you know, to get people's attention. So, what's your brother's name? Mike. Let's pray for Mike. Uh, how's Honey doing? Uh, 
disease with their arthritis. Her mom is going where, or she is, or? Okay. Any, any other prayer requests? Pray for Georgia Dika, uh, Chris Deal, and um, Mark Menendez. These people have been prayed for. We need to be. You know, it's like it's like Carl that I deal with. Talking to Carl is is like walking into a wall, spitting into the wind. But but God is able. Listen, if God can save the Apostle Paul, He can save anybody else. Is there somebody that would be harder for the gospel than Paul? Make your case. I, I don't know. Let's have, uh, let's see. Rick, would you, Judy, and Steve, would you lead us in prayer? Thank you for listening today. For more information about Grace Baptist Church, please visit our website at gracebaptistofkettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.